How many of you have a family Bible? Or how many of you have seen one? All right, that's better. Um, family Bibles are very precious things, aren't they? Um, for those that, that keep them, and, and actually we don't have one, I have to confess. Um, but for those that keep them, they, in the front, record the births and deaths of family members, genealogies, right? The, the dates of baptism and confirmation. Um, they are things that point to God, right? In addition to being God's Word. But they also testify to the family, the continuity of the faith, which itself is a precious thing, right? Now, you know, sadly, that's not always some legacy, the legacy that we have, right? We can't control that. And yet, it is a precious thing to be knit together as God's people, as 1 Corinthians tells us, as one body. I remember when I was in college, I took a class on Islam, and it was really interesting um, that one of the things that we learned that's an Islamic tradition is that the Quran, their sacred text, always has to be on the highest shelf, always has to be in the highest position, the position of honor. Right? So if you have a bookshelf, the Quran's never on the bottom. It's always on the top. It says something, right? Just like our family Bibles say something about who who and what we value as people. And I think as people in the modern, um, in modern day America with multiple translations of Bibles on our shelves, I've got a bunch, I'm sure you do too, we've lost some of the idea of the preciousness of the Word of God and how holy and what a divine gift it is. We've probably heard stories, no doubt, of pages of the Bible being completely used up as they're circulated in communist China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, places where Christianity and Christians are oppressed. In 1539, in England, the English crown ordered that the copy a copy of the Great Bible, the first authorized edition before the King James edition, be placed in all the churches in the realm. And so, as part of the English Reformation, the Bible was put back into the hands of the people. Now, not literally into their hands, mind you, because it was so expensive to print Bibles. But if you go to England, you'll find these pulpit Bibles chained to the lectern because they're so precious, right? And they were so expensive. But the church was always open so that people could come listen to the daily office being read, or they could come read the Bible themselves. And what a precious gift that was after having it kept from them for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years. We as Anglicans are a reformational church. Yes, we are Catholic in the sense that we partake in the one Catholic church, but we are also a firmly Protestant reformational church standing on the Word of God and having a precious love of the Bible as the sole authority of God in our lives. The stories 
though, of churches in the English Reformation being packed full and people listening to God's word for hours. Oh, that we had that hunger for God's word. Or that we had the hunger for his word that we see demonstrated in the book of Nehemiah today. And so while today's lectionary texts are a feast, a veritable feast of ways that we could go, that first Corinthians passage is really great, isn't it? We're not going to go that way. But rather, we're going to look at the preciousness of the word of God, if you hadn't guessed that already. And I'm going to use as the main text today, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, as our structure, which reads thusly, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. There's two main points I want to draw from this. Number one, that the Word of God is the center of the Christian life. And the Word of God, when we talk about the Word of God, is a person. Who? We should know by now, having heard the Christmas and Epiphany readings the last few weeks, the Word of God is Jesus And in fact, in verse 13, that word is someone to whom we're giving an account, right? Which is really interesting. So, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 is not just talking about the Bible, but talking about the eternal living word, Jesus Christ. And yet, the Bible is our sure point to Jesus Christ. It is the center of how we know God's will. And so the two points stand together, that the word of God, that is the written word, and the living word, are the center of the Christian life. And number two, that we will give an account to the living word about the written word. Does that make sense? We're using word in two different ways here, as scripture and as the person of Jesus. Why these two points? Well, because I think that they are both found in today's readings, in the lectionary. The Word of God being the center of Christian life, whether the center of God's chosen people's lives in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And I hope that that's obvious to this congregation, but sadly it's not obvious to many people that the Bible is the center of our lives. In fact, there's many churches that do not have a high view of Scripture, that do not understand that Scripture is the authority that we go to, and yet they call themselves churches. And there are many Christians also who do not have a high view of Scripture, who don't understand that it's under the authority of Scripture that we live and move and have our being, and that's how we follow Jesus. In a poll conducted by Gallup Research five years ago, 24% of Americans believed the Bible was, quote, the actual word of God and to be taken 
literally word for word. Almost half of what in the 1970s and the 1980s where 40% believed that. Yet, the news isn't all bad. Even, in, even yet, 71% now believe that the Bible is a holy document and is at least, quote-unquote, God-inspired. God-inspired. Now, there's a lot that we could get into here, right? About what inspiration means or what literal means, right? means different things to different people, I'll tell you. So we're not going to get into that. But Americans in all ages still largely accept the Bible as a holy document, and yet they downplay God's direct role in it. That could mean that people are more willing in the past to believe in its open interpretation. If man, and this is a quote from the study, interestingly, if man, not God, wrote the Bible, more can be questioned. And that, in turn, may have consequences for where Americans come down on a number of morally tinged issues. End quote. It's a keen observation from a secular study, right? That if, in fact, you take away God as the authority behind the Bible, the morality falls away. And I would say that that's not the most important point, but it is a point. Because when you take away the idea that God is behind Scripture and that it is his divine word, then we get all twisted up with morals, and in addition to that, with ethics and politics, let alone with our belief in who God is. We've seen evidence of that in the past few years. Despite what such institutions and individuals might claim or look like, any institution that claims to be a church and yet jettisons the authority of the Bible as the word of God is not a church. Because it's not partaking of the word. It's not built on the solid foundation. But rather, it's an institution that might have churchy things and churchy names and churchy vestments even. It's not a church. As individuals, we too have to be careful because many people call themselves Christians and yet many people do not submit themselves to the Word of God, either the living God or the written God. Now, it's not for ours, us to say whether they're Christians or not. Only the Holy Spirit knows the heart. But it's an unclear thing sometimes with people as to whether they have submitted themselves to God or not, and therefore whether they are indeed part of the body of Christ or not as Christ's followers. The Bible itself is clear about the authority of the Scriptures and God's Word, whether it's the Old or the New Testament. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, I'm sure you've heard this before, reads this way, the Apostle Paul writing to the young bishop Timothy, says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's a long list, isn't it? About the authority of scripture, particularly the written word of God, useful for teaching, rebuking, 
correcting, training in righteousness, and ultimately equipping Christians. While this passage is referring actually to the, history, the Hebrew scriptures, it also applies to the New Testament as well. And perhaps you've heard that when the Bible speaks of the Word of God, it's not speaking of the scriptures, but of Jesus only. After First John, after reading John 1, referring to Jesus as the Word of God, it's interesting why people might, and, and possible to see why people might think that. But the scriptures, while not divine, are still the divine gift. And they belong to Jesus, the living word. So our Lord Jesus knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. If you look at the text, Jesus is constantly quoting the Old Testament. And indeed, he actually alludes to the Apocrypha books too. In Luke's gospel today, Jesus begins his ministry teaching in synagogues in the Old Testament. Look with me um, at... Today's Gospel. It's from Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Where is Jesus coming from? This is the problem with the lectionary. Unless you ask these questions, you don't know. Where is Jesus coming from? Anyone have their Bible? The wilderness, yeah. What's been happening in the wilderness? The temptation, right. We'll read that later in Lent, right? About the temptation. Jesus is coming from his baptism, from the wilderness, here. And what's the first thing that he does? Not a trick question. Verse 14. Returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out the surrounding country. Verse 15, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. What's Jesus doing? Teaching, preaching the Bible. His Bible. The Old Testament. And we get an instance of it then and what he does in Nazareth. Continue looking. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. What's he doing? He's doing what our lector today, Ryan Ham, did very nobly with all of those names. <laughs> well done, sir. Um, he's reading the lectionary. He's reading the scroll appointed for the day. Right? And he stood up to read, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what does he do after that? He rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and he preaches. But his sermon is very short. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
How do they react, those of you that have your Bibles? Or those of you that know the story well? I can't hear you, sorry. Well, interestingly, at first they are happy, right? Don't miss that. At first they are happy, but then they're not too happy about it, right? This is uh, chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, where the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now stop right there. What's Jesus doing here? Once again, he's quoting the Old Testament, right? He's he's recalling these stories, talking to them about how they fit in God's Word, right? And at first, they love what he's saying. But now, look what happens. Verse 28. When they heard these things all in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath, and they rose up to dro- and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It's an interesting insight into Jesus' ministry, not just that he starts by preaching the word of God, but how people react to it. When you think about it, it's actually every human being's response to the living word of Jesus and to the written word of his Bible. Archbishop Cramner writes in his homily on the word of God and reading the scriptures. He says, In the Bible we may learn to know ourselves how vile and pitiable we are and also to know God, how good he is of himself and how he makes us all creatures and partakers of his goodness. He continues, As drink is pleasant to those who are dry, and meat to those who are hungry, so is the reading, hearing, searching, and studying of Holy Scripture to those who desire to know God or themselves and to do his will. It is only those who are so drowned in worldly vanities that they neither savor God nor any godliness, whose stomachs loathe and abhor the heavenly knowledge and food of God's word. Like I said, when you think about it, humanity can be broken into one of two camps. And in fact, even we as individuals can be broken into one of two camps from day to day. Those for whom the word of God is sweet and slaking of our thirst and those to whom the word of God is abhorrent and offensive. Why? Because it confronts the vileness of who we are outside of Jesus. But it also gives a way of redemption in God's love. And yet people have different ways that they look at Jesus as the living word and his word in the scriptures. 
as his word made known. The area of Galilee, notice, rejoices at Jesus' teaching before he comes to Nazareth. He goes from place to place preaching in synagogues, and we have no insight as to the fact that he's ever opposed, but his own people in Nazareth try to kill him. What's pleasant meat and drink to some is abhorrent and repulsive to others. And so what is this to say to the church and to you and to I as Christians? Well, first of all, the witness of the scriptures, Jesus himself, the author of the scriptures, the reformers, the church fathers, and the ancient church is consistent and clear that the word of God is the primary and supreme authority in all areas of faith and doctrine. As Article 20 in our Articles of Religion say, while the church is the keeper of God's word written, it is unlawful for it to ordain anything contrary to it. The church and the Bible do not have equal authority. Church tradition and authority are subject, submitted to, under the authority of the word of God. This principle was recovered by the English Reformation, but it's also a principle of the ancient church. It's not exclusively Protestants. When we turn to the church fathers, to those men early writing about the church, we see this, and we see that the reformers were trying to recover it. Gregory of Nyssa, in the late 300s, writes this about the authority of Scripture. He says, Let the inspired Scripture, then, be our umpire, and the vote of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine words. Before him, even, and he was writing in the 300s, Hippolytus writes in the 200s, There is, brethren, one God, the knowledge of whom we gain from the holy scriptures and from no other source. It's pretty definitive. The great English reformer, then, an author of the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cramner, says, quoting St. John Chrysostom, that whatever is required for our salvation is fully contained in the Scripture of God. Now, there's alternatives to this view, right? Even inside the church. You'll often hear Roman Catholics, for example, who I love as brothers and sisters, talking about the Pope and the Magisterium being the ultimate arbiter. They love the fact that they have the ultimate source that they can go to. And I have to confess as an Anglican, sometimes it's really frustrating that we don't have a magisterium, that we don't have a source that we can go to outside of God's word. And yet, we are adhering to the early church. I've heard Eastern Orthodox folks speak about how the church councils are equal to the scriptures equal in authority, how the creeds are equal to scriptures. I believe they're wrong and misled because the councils and the creeds themselves see the scriptures as the authority on which they stand. And of course, in our experience in postmodern America, mainline Protestantism, even now we see in evangelicalism, people that say the Bible is outdated, people that say, say that it's culturally bound people that say that it's limited by historical context and they pick and pull it so much apart that it has no more authority to speak to you 
than any other book. In Pentecostal churches, we see people that elevate words of knowledge and prophecy, quote-unquote, as being practically equal to the Scriptures. All these, friends, are dangerous errors. Dangerous to the church, dangerous to the Christian soul. Why? Because they all introduce partial falsehood. It's difficult enough to do hermeneutics, to do interpretation of God's Word when you're seeing God's Word as the primary source of authority. You start introducing these other things and it becomes a muddled mess, which of course is why the Reformation happened. It become a muddled mess. Even our Roman Catholic brethren admitted it and had what's called the Counter-Reformation with the Council of Trent, where they went back and they said, well, we've got to define some things here. We've gotten far away from the truth. As far as application, why is this such an important point? Well, a Christian must know his Bible well for two predominant reasons. Number one, because the Christian should intellectually know God. Intellectually know God. I know that's really dismissed in modern America. We talk all about personal relationship. And hear me, personal relationship with Jesus Christ is important. But so is intellectually knowing what is true, what is good, what is real, what is beautiful in knowing God. And number two, knowing the Bible well introduces you personally and emotionally to God so that you might partake of His love and goodness. For some, the intellectual part's easier, right? For some of us, we love to dig in to the arguments behind the Word of God. To others, the personal, emotional side's easier. We glory in basking in the living Word through his written word, how the Bible speaks to us, how Jesus speaks to us in prayer. But the two, friends, are not meant to be at loggerheads. The two are not to be separated. The two are to be integrated, fully combined, so that we might know what is true and good and beautiful and love Jesus. Remember what we say in our baptismal and confirmation vows. We say that we desire to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. To intellectually know God is not, necessarily, is not necessarily to love Him. But to intellectually know God is necessary to love Him. Remember that old song, that oldie? To know, know, know Him is to love, love, love Him. I won't sing it for you. But there's truth to it. You can't love who you don't know. So friends, to intellectually know God, we do not turn to philosophy. As St. Paul tells us, philosophy devoid of God is empty deceit, subject to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. That's St. Paul writing to the Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. This is not to say that philosophy is bad, but it's not the source. Scripture is the source. And to be constantly learning about God is to love Him. To not be constantly learning of God 
is a self-imposed handicap. It's like going down the steps today and intentionally breaking your leg and then trying to lay out, run the race that's been laid out for you. You're not going to run very well. You might make it. Don't neglect this. It's spiritual neglect of the living word to neglect his written word. And it doesn't merely hurt you. It hurts the body of Christ. It hurts your family. It hurts your church. It hurts your congregation. It hurts your community. Because when we're ignorant of the written word, we can't proclaim him well. The living word, that is. To personally know God is different than knowledge, but knowledge is necessary. And so I ask you, do you want to know the attributes of God? Do you want to know what he is? Oh, how many times I hear, I want to know God's uh, reason for life. I want to know God's will for my life. Have you read the Bible? Have you gone to the Bible not just as an intellectual exercise, but to let it speak to you? Do you know, want to know God's will for your life? Do you want to know the meaning of life? Do you want to know the answer to the big questions? Turn to the Word of God, which points to the living Word of God. Then you will know His purpose for you, your place in the world, your place in His plan. There's no shortcuts. Know God's Word, not merely to defend the truth, but to let God's Word shape you, to shape your mind and your heart, and to shape your attitude. Look at the Old Testament reading from Nehemiah. And here's where we'll end. Do you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah? The word of God had been neglected and lost. And here we have the story of Ezra bringing out the book of the law. And the people hadn't heard it. And so, notice, they read the book of the law for the entire morning. And what's the people's reaction? Attentiveness. And then, weeping. They don't just intellectually love hearing the Word of God and the book of the law, but they weep so much so that the priests have to come to them and explain to them that this is a, a good thing, that this is a day of feasting, that this is part of the richness of God that's been poured out on them, and how blessed they are. How do we react? How do we react? Do we find God's word sweet and thirst-quenching? Or do we find it tedious or even abhorrent, even worse? Ask God to help you read his word. Read it daily. Make a practice of it. Memorize it. That's not just something Baptists do. Memorize it. Love it. Make it part of you. Come to Bible study when it's offered. Classes when they're offered. Grow in your knowledge and love of Christ. And see how you're changed. Friends, let us be inspired to be prepared to give it account to Jesus, the living word, about what we did with his written word. And I'll leave you with John Chrysostom's sermon on this point from the late 300s. I exhort and entreat you all, disregard what this man and that man thinks about these things. 
and inquire from the scriptures all these things. And having learned what are the true riches, let us pursue after them that we may obtain also the eternal good things which may we obtain through the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit be all glory, might, and honor now and forever, world without end. Amen.